Welcome to the Code Newbie Podcast, where we talk to people on their coding journey in hopes of helping you on yours. I'm your host, Saran, and today we're talking about some of the fundamentals of machine learning and AI with Oscar Baybaum, co-founder of Nickel. You know, now you're in the business of like detecting when your model starts like performing worse and like pulling in new data that is like represented of the new distribution and training on that. Oscar talks about the difference between machine learning and AI what it traditionally takes to integrate machine learning into your code, and how using a tool like Nickel can help you in your learning journey. After this. Are you looking to connect with a diverse audience of developers? Look no further. You can partner with us here at the Code Newbie Podcast, and we'll help get your message out to our incredible listeners in an ad just like this one, led by me, your host. Contact us by emailing sponsors at codenewbie.org. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. So before we get into machine learning and AI and all the stuff you're doing at Nickel, tell us about how you first started to code. Yeah, I mean, I'm old enough where we were like the first people on the block to have a computer at all. Like mm-hmm. my dad's brother worked at like IBM or something. So he got us a cheaper computer. So this was like really early. It was basic. The programming language was called basic. Mm-hmm. Like you could basically, all you could do is write something like a little prompt and then have the player answer, you know, a question, yes or no. So it's it sort of like role-playing games where you would sort of navigate some sort of world that the game designer had developed. So I know that you have a lot of traditional schooling in computer science and engineering under your belt. Can you talk about that part of your life? Yeah, I mean, so I don't really consider myself a programmer Mm. still. Hmm. (laughs) I mean, I've done it 24-7, I would say, the last (laughs) 10 years or so. Yeah. But I mean, my, my background is in engineering physics. That's still what I consider my core expertise, my background. So this is stuff like continuous math, Mm. calculus, that kind of stuff. And then all the physics that go with it, uh, dynamic systems, control theory, those Mm -hmm. kind of things. So I did that as my master's. And then we had on our math department, like applied math, they were doing um, an optional, like focus on computer vision, basically machine learning. I took that, decided to focus on that. And uh, at the time, believe it or not, it was actually considered a very bad career choice. Oh, Yeah. Yeah, back then in Sweden, there was mm. not a single job to be had in like computer vision or machine learning because it just didn't work. Like there was mm-hmm. almost nothing that worked. Of course, in, I think in the US, there was probably some companies playing around with it, but like not in Sweden. So, but I did it anyway because it just seemed so exciting. It was truly a passion choice where it's like, wow, I can somehow get this computer to understand what's in an image mm-hmm. by like having it learn what's in an image. It seemed like such a powerful thing mm. that I wanted to get into it. And what was it that made you love it so much that you went through what sounds like a very rigorous, you know, academic career, getting your master's and, you know, doing all that math and engineering? What was it that, you know, despite the lack of jobs and it being considered, you know, maybe not a great career option, what kind of kept you there? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. And I think I got a little bit lucky. Mm. And I mean, I, I work hard, right? So maybe you make your own luck. But I think even uh, as I was completing my master's in Sweden, you do this like six month like internship basically at a at a company to sort of prove your skills in, in a more practical setting. And the company there was they had me do like a machine learning applied machine learning experiment 
to do like autofocus in this microscopy setting. So we just collect the data, you know, old school extracted features and then ran like a sport vector machine was the algorithm of choice back then. Mm. My academic advice is like, yeah, sure, go do the project, but it's never going to work. Like, don't expect it to work. <laughs> and also the, the guys at the company, they were like, yeah, I mean, we realize this is pretty far out there, but like, let's just see what happens. And uh, lo and behold, it actually worked really well. So mm. it was such an encouragement, right? And then, you know, they took a patent on it. It went into production. So, you know, that was a really great start feeling that, okay, giving me confidence that if you just pay attention and push through, you can actually get machine learning to work in surprising settings. And then my first job out of college was at a startup in Sweden that were building a, it's a crazy idea. It's an airbag bicycle helmet called Hövding. So what this thing is, is that imagine you put on a collar around your neck, right? And you zip it up. And then the collar is equipped with an airbag that is like sort of rolled up into the collar. And it also has a little microcomputer and like an AI algorithm in it. And what it does is that if you uh, happen to be in a, a bike accident, as you're flying through the air, like as you're experiencing it, mm-hmm. the AI will realize that you're in a <laughs> bike accident and inflate the airbag around your head. It's like a hood that inflates around your whole head. Huh, so by the time you hit the ground, you're actually fully protected. And they're actually better protected than a standard. So the founders were both non-technical. They were like designers that had come up with this idea, got the money. So I was the first engineer on site, right? So I had to design the compute hardware, the sensors, and then the actual machine learning algorithm, the data collection, and so on. And we actually got it to work where this is now in production and shipped you know, across the world on an application that just seemed like this is too good to be true. Like, how can you build an embedded AI system that like reacts that quickly and in such a safety critical thing, right? You don't want it to fail in either direction. You don't want false positives. You don't want false negatives. So tell me about your career trajectory after you did all this work, you know, where did you go from there and how did you end up at Nickel? I did hoving for two or three years, and then mm-hmm. I still felt like I wanted to learn more. I still felt like this field of machine learning, there's so much to it, and I've only done it a few years and done that much schooling. So I, I applied for the you know a PhD program in, in the U.S. in San Diego, and was accepted. <laughs> it took me two tries, actually. And so then I spent like you know, six years in school there, and that was a computer science PhD in, in UCSD. So that was like I had to go back and learn all the computer science basics that I hadn't learned because I was doing engineering physics, you know, in Sweden. But of course, you know, there was amazing machine learning talent there among the faculty. So I, I really learned, like, fleshed out everything, like all the different concepts, all the different ways to think about it. It's sort of a, it's a very big space. And then also during my PhD, I built this thing called CoralNet. It's a site that I developed during my PhD, and it's actually used today by many big government agencies to do monitoring of coral reefs Mm, and by by researchers. So the idea was like, you take a picture of the coral reef and then you could train your own sort of custom AI to classify what's on the bottom. Like, is is it sand? Is it coral? Is it Mm. algae and so on? So you can quantify what's down there and extrapolate your, you know, ecological trends and biological state of the system. (sighs) And then what happened, you know, as I was maybe halfway through my PhD, the big breakthrough happened in deep learning. Mm, yeah, I yeah. went to Berkeley and did research there. It was such a completely new thing, right? And I wanted to wrap my head around it. And then I went to the self-driving car industry. So for the last five years, I was actually leading a big team. We ended up being like around 100 people in the end to develop like the AI to drive a car, right? 
which is arguably one of the hardest AI problems of today. It's like Mm -hmm, big mm -hmm. robot navigating an open-ended environment with, you know, a big mass is very safety critical. So, you know, we had, like I said, we had at the end about 100 people and they, you know, on things like finding the right data, finding the right model architectures, building all the infrastructure you need for, you know, to do everything for data mining, for training, for deploy. And then we had a team focused on like basically metrics and how do we evaluate these things. So while I was immersed in that world, a friend of mine, he's a developer. I used to be uh, one of the leads at Square for the developer organization. He had a side project where he needed some very simple, quote unquote, very simple, but like content curation AI. So he wanted some mm-hmm. some way to say, okay, he had user contributed content and he wanted some way to say this content is good or this content is bad. Mm. And he was like, why as a developer, like a generalist software developer, why is it so hard for me still to add this relatively simple classifier? Like in this case, it was a text classifier to my application. And I was like, yeah, you're right. It shouldn't be that hard. Like, mm. And we started thinking about how can we put the cleanest, the simplest possible like box or API you know, abstraction around the machine learning, whole machine learning complexity. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. basically what Nico is. So we have a UI that is pretty well developed, but it's fundamentally an API where you can say, just post your own data. Right? So it's all about custom AI. So for your own application, just give us some images or text or whatever you have and give us the output categories that you're looking for. We'll train the model for you and we'll do it very quickly. We'll do it in a few seconds. And then we'll deploy it immediately to an elastic infrastructure so you can start hitting that invoke API with millions of invokes immediately. Very cool. So that's what it's about. It's like removing all the barriers, as many barriers as we can. I mean, it's always going to be up to you to find your own data, right? We can't do that for you. You have to define your own categories that you care about. But we work really hard on abstracting away as much as possible all the like, we call it sometimes the machine learning anxiety, because mm-hmm. yeah. even if you, know, if you go and learn about machine learning, or if you try to build this yourself, there's so many choices. There's mm-hmm. an insane mm-hmm. amount of choices, right? Libraries, algorithms, networks, hyperparameters, data splits, you name it, right? Wow. So we yeah. try to say, you know what? Don't worry about that. We'll try it. Basically, we'll try everything and we'll give you what works best for you. So let's dig into machine learning and AI as concepts. I feel like we use those words very interchangeably. I see a lot of like machine learning slash AI, you know, kind of gets lumped up into one category. And I wanted to know, what is the difference? What is the difference between machine learning and AI? So machine learning is is a well-defined term. It's a branch of statistics, basically, where Mm -hmm. you are modeling the input data and the output data in a way that when you see a new input data, you can infer the most likely output label. So that is a very well-defined branch of research and engineering, right? And uh, that's that's the term I've typically used my whole career. AI is, on the other hand, not very well-defined. It's mm. a very wishy-washy term. I would say, if anything, it's a broader term. So an AI just means anything that sort of resembles intelligence. And of course, the problem is, what is intelligence? Like, how do you mm-hmm. define intelligence? It's right, actually right. very difficult. But it, loosely, it's like something that resembles intelligence. And of course, you could implement an AI using machine learning. So you could use a machine learning method to implement something that resembles intelligence. For example, all the advances that DeepMind is doing, you might have heard that in chess and Go, 
all these amazing breakthroughs. Mm-hmm. Arguably, that's an artificial intelligence because it's sort of like, arguably, you have to be intelligent to beat the world's best Go player. Mm-hmm. It's a narrow right, type right. of intelligence because that same computer can't do anything else. It can't like boil on it. Right, egg. right, right. But it's it's intelligent in the narrow sense. And that AI was trained using machine learning. Mm. Right? But you could also arguably build an AI, like the old chess engines. Mm-hmm. They weren't powered by machine learning. They were powered by rules that someone had written down, basically. You know, like if you're in this position on the chessboard, you should do this. Mm-hmm. Rules of thumb. Mm-hmm. So you can use rules of thumbs to build an AI. Arguably, it's not going to be a very good AI. <laughs> mm-hmm. But just mm-hmm. to kind of contrast, you can, you can use rules of thumbs to build an AI or you could use machine learning to build an AI. Mm-hmm. That's sort of how I think about it. Okay, so let's dig into that a little bit more. What is machine learning if it's not rules, right? I think as programmers, we're pretty comfortable with rules, right? We say like, if this, then that is generally what coding boils down to, <laughs> you know, if we're, if we're being honest. Yeah. So with yeah. machine learning, if it's not that, then what is it? Okay, so that's a great question. And of course, I would say once the model is trained, uh-huh. it actually becomes rules again, Okay. right? It becomes like, okay, I take the input, I do some compute, and then ultimately you have some sort of score and then right. you have to run the threshold. Is either it's this or that, right? right, right. However, this is the difference is that the rules are learned, right? Mm. The rules are learned from data. So instead of having a bunch of if statements, I mean, there, there are literally machine learning methods called like decision trees mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that are exactly just yeah. if statements. Yeah. But the thing is that they're learned from data. Mm-hmm. So which question you ask and how you branch through that tree is sort of optimal in, in a sense based on historical data. Mm. But then, of course, now you use deep neural networks, so, but it's still sort of the same thing that you can learn rules through data. Okay, so what I'm hearing you say is if I'm doing you know, just a regular script, just doing kind of everyday coding on my own, I'm writing those if statements. Like I'm the one determining, you know, if this, click this button, get this page, like that kind of thing. Whereas right. with machine learning, it's not really me figuring out the rules it's me training and that's where i think the idea of like kind of training with data comes in yeah it's me giving my program a set of data and letting the data dictate what those rules are and it's not from me it's the data kind of making those decisions so the output might be the same where we still have those conditionals those decision trees those if else statements but the Mm -hmm. way i got there is a different process am i understanding that correctly yeah i think that's a good way to put it and that is, of course, the like appeal, right? Mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. quote unquote don't have to write any code, right? <laughs> That's true. Oh, you make it look so <laughs> make it sound so easy when you put it that way. I don't have to write any code. <laughs> and, and I think, moreover, it improves by itself, right? Mm-hmm. Again, quote unquote, where mm-hmm. you feed in more data, you get a better system, right? Right. So at that level, it's extremely compelling technology. Is your company looking to connect with a diverse audience of developers? Look no further. The dev community is the go-to destination for developers to learn, connect, and support each other. You can share your message with the 15 million developers that visit every single month by using our powerful native advertising platform. To learn more, visit dev.2 slash advertise.
So if I am new to this world and I want to start diving into machine learning and AI, what are some basics that I should know and maybe learn about in my journey? You know, we kind of touched on this idea of training. We talked about, you know, data sets that we have to work with. What are some other kind of basics, some other concepts I would come across if I was getting into this world as a beginner? I mean, so you probably have to start by picking up Python because that's the language that most of the deep learning frameworks use. Mm. So that's like a good sort of tangible start, right? And then once you know Python, I, I personally recommend a framework called PyTorch. It's a fantastic piece of software. It's like mm. the best deep learning software that's out there. And it's, so it's, it's called PyTorch because it used to be using a different programming language, but now they hooked it up to Python and did all the Python bindings. And it's just beautiful. It's very powerful, very descriptive. And once you know PyTorch, you can essentially, if you're just doing a hobby project, that's pretty much it, right? You can find some data, you can train any neural network you want using PyTorch, you can just define the topology, and then you can save that network and you can load it up again and, and do your predictions on new data. Mm-hmm. That's like the very core. And if, you, if you're just a hobbyist, you know, that's, that's an excellent place to start and, and you, should, you should start there. What happens when you like take this to production though, is it gets complicated in several ways. For example, so when you train, right? So a lot of machine learning is because the theory of it is so weak. Basically, what it amounts to usually is just trying a lot of things, mm. right? So any new problem, you just there's a couple of deep neural network architectures that are, you 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 think might work, but even those architectures have a lot of different hyperparameters. Like how do you train it? How do you fine tune it? How do you pre-process your data, for example? So. Basically, what ends up happening is that you need to try a lot of different things on your data to know which works best. And so to do that effectively, you basically have to build up like a distributed computing cluster, right? Mm. Some sort of GPU cluster. And for example, there is an open source community for this called determine.ai. Okay. So they kind of solve that problem. You know, I think it's still pretty early, but in, in a way they let you like provision GPU nodes on say AWS relatively easy, I would say. And then run experiments and then sort of read out your results so you can help figure out which one is the best model. That's one set of complexity that you, you kind of have to figure out. And then once you have the model, you need to figure out how to deploy it, right? And then depending on if you're deploying on, on like a device or if you're deploying on the cloud, that, that has different complexity. For example, if you're on a device, you need to prune the network to make it a little bit smaller maybe quantize it to use a different data type so you get the, like, the very fast inference time that you might need for, a, say, a real-time application. Mm-hmm. So both of those things are more on like the infrastructure side. But then you start getting into stuff like, I would say, more annoying issues like data drift. Mm-hmm. So let's say the data you trained on was data you had lying around on your laptop, and that data maybe isn't exactly the kind of data you're seeing in production. Mm-hmm. So say you're training a spam classifier on some data you found on the internet, but then the kind of spam that you see on your site looks different, right? It's completely different characteristics. Mm-hmm. What happens, unfortunately, is that the machine learning algorithm you trained is not going to work as well. It's something called a domain shift, and it's actually really annoying in machine learning. Mm-hmm. Most of the algorithms assume that the data you trained on are drawn, so, so the technical world is drawn from the same distribution, right? The mm-hmm. same statistical distribution of data. And when that shifts, who knows? There's very few guarantees on what your model is going to do. You know, now you're in the business of like detecting when your model starts like performing worse and like pulling in new data that is like represented of the new distribution and training on that. So stuff like that, you know, 
it gets annoying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a lot of little things. So I know that you have, um, as you mentioned earlier, a mathematics background, and you've been doing this for 20 years. You have a master's, and you're you know, very, very well trained and educated. Do you feel like you need all of that background to implement machine learning and AI into your code today? Kind of. I mean, really? okay. I would say if you want to do it yourself, like if you're the kind of person that wants to understand all the technology or you're working with, yeah, you kind of need, I, I mean, I have like spent way too much time in school, but I would say you need <laughs> at least a master's in some of the related like statistical topics. And I think you also need to be a pretty solid coder to actually be able to pull it off. Or if you're lucky and you're hired into a company that has a good mentor that can help you navigate some of these things, I think it's a pretty long road. And, you know, that that's basically why we started Nickel. So, you know, Nickel is not the only option. There are several companies like Nickel that mm -hmm. try to abstract away as much as possible. And in fact, the machine learning is generally speaking, it's called the ML ops, like machine learning ops mm. landscape is quite big and it's quite messy. Mm -hmm. So there are, if you want to do it yourself, right, there are ways to abstract, like I said, determine AI, abstract away the training cluster. And mm. then there's something called like weights and biases that abstract away like the monitoring of experiments. Mm. And there are other services that are, kind of help you with the monitoring of models once like the model drift monitoring. So you can kind of piece it together like that if you want to, or you can use a service like Nickel where it says it's like sort of the highest level abstraction where you say, just give us your data. We promise to do our best and use all our experience to train the best possible model given your data. And then we also deploy it for you. So you're just interacting with our API mm -hmm. at a higher level. And I would say today, it'd be a little bit silly not to start there. Mm -hmm. Like even mm -hmm. if you want to do it yourself, I would say use something like Nickel first because you'll get up and running in like a day, right? Mm -hmm. With something mm -hmm. that is likely going to be hard to beat of course you can beat it right i mean we have a um, it's called an auto ml system right the system that finds the best possible model for you mm -hmm. but that auto ml system as much as we love it and work on it it's general right it serves all our customers so of course if you spend a year just working on your specific data and your specific problem you're probably going to do better mm -hmm. but i would say start with nickel or, or one of our competitors and then use that as a baseline right and then try and improve it yourself later if you have time. Yeah, I think that's what I'm, I'm trying to figure out because I know that there are so many ML and AI, either purely no-code solutions, low-code solutions, or just really easy to use APIs, right? I mean, you are coding, you still need to know some Python and you still need to you know, know how to work with data sets, but you don't need a degree. Right. You don't need to like go back right. to school to kind of integrate that. Uh, fast AI is an example that comes to mind. And I feel like there's a bunch of others I've heard over the years yeah. that really lower that barrier to entry. And so yeah. I'm I'm wondering, you know, at what point does it make sense to use these kind of off-the-shelf tools, these things that require a little bit of training? You know, I, I think fast AI has like a you know courses and, and like a little school that you can you know, mm -hmm. watch online and, and kind of, you know, wrap your mind around things if you're totally new to integrate into your code. And in what situation would someone say, you know, this isn't quite enough. I think I want to do more hardcore training. Yeah. So, I mean, fast AI is actually, I would say, 
more of an education and training platform to mm-hmm. help people that want to do it themselves. Mm-hmm. Actually, I would say it's quite different from, from Nickel, where mm-hmm. Nickel is, you know, we abstract away all the machine learning complexity and all the infrastructure complexity. Mm-hmm. Fast AI, it's not a software as a service, right? It's an education, it's training material. And they also have some libraries that wrap this. I mentioned this PyTorch before. They have like their own wrappers on PyTorch that makes it maybe a little That's bit easier. That's what I was thinking. Exactly. That's what yeah. I was thinking about. Yeah, they have their yeah. own. Um, they do have their yeah, own. Yeah, so it's a, you know, they, they certainly make it a little bit easier. I think they're doing a great job. And I recommend it for anyone who like wants to learn the nuts and bolts and really do this themselves. So it's like, I would say, first of all, start using Nickel. I mean, there's like Google has a system called Vertex AI that essentially mm-hmm. does the same thing. We like to think they're not as good, but they're a lot slower <laughs> and clunkier, the API and so on. Mm-hmm. But just to mention one, another alternative to Nickel, right? Sure, but sure. But then once that's up and running and you have time, then yeah, I think Fast AI is an excellent place to start to learn and try and do it yourself. So I know that I can't remember exactly when this started, but for it feels like many, many years, people have been saying that machine learning is everywhere and it's going to be a part of all the code, all the businesses, all the software. And it's been really talked about as this thing that's kind of integral to everything you do, no matter what you do. Uh, I don't know how true that is, but that's definitely the message that I feel like I've I've heard over the years. And I'm wondering, you know, if I'm a developer and I'm trying to integrate some element of machine learning into my code, how would I walk through that process? How would I kind of break that down into manageable steps and get started? Right. So that, that's a great question. And my co-founder wrote the blog post about this mm-hmm. where he argued that Machine learning is just another developer tool. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You listen to some people, like some of the big sort of advocates, they make it sound like it's the end of software. I don't think so. Just like you, you're choosing between using a regular expression or like some simple like if statements. At some point, you hit the limits of what you can write down explicitly and then you turn to machine learning for those functions, right? So at Nickel, we talk a lot about you're training a function that you're then calling inside your code, right? So you're training a nickel function to do a specific piece. And I think going back to your question, it's just like that. You have to understand the vocabulary of, well, what are the types of functions that you can model with machine learning, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So for example, the most basic one is probably binary classification where the input is text or an image and the output is either true or false, right? That's a binary classification. That's one type of function you can train with machine learning. But then you can also train a function that it's not the output is not binary, it's many, one of many, right? And then there's something called multi-label where the output is actually many out of many. Like it could be any number of things that are true, more like tagging, where like mm-hmm. many tags can be true. Right, right. And then there's more complex the output can be a float, like a regression. We call it regression, but you know, the output is a float instead of a categorical value. Mm-hmm. And then there's detection in images where now you start talking about like spatial reasoning inside the image where like stuff you see an object in this corner of the image or you see like three objects in an image. So I think it is important to understand what are the different functions that you can train and that kind of know the design space there, what choices you have. And then you have to sort of map your own whatever software or whatever like thing you're building. Like you have to think about, okay, which pieces here can I like hand over to a machine learned function mm-hmm. and which things should I just break out and make in a sort of a conventional module or class for? Mm-hmm. 
Coming up next, Oscar talks about use cases where using nickel shines, as well as some of the limitations of nickel after this. Tell me a little bit more about nickel and you know that the kind of category of no code AI solutions in terms of what it can really do for a product, what kind of power it can give to an app. What are some examples of you know interesting use cases and applications of something like that? I mean, it's a no code in the sense that when you train the model, you can use the UI. Mm. But it's certainly not a no-code to go into production. Gotcha. We basically just expose an API, and you have to hit that API uh, using whatever language of choice. We think we're more of as a developer tool, but certainly the front-end, the training part can be done using the UI. The use cases that we have are actually really, really varied. So let, let me give you a couple. So there is a company called Garden that builds these indoor gardens. So it's sort of a high-tech garden. We have these plants that grow up on a trellis. And there is like built-in lamps and heat and also like cameras and so on mm-hmm. on the irrigation system. So they are using nickel to figure out like, given an image of this plant, is it healthy? Like, is it wilting? Mm-hmm. Does it have enough water? Mm-hmm. So that's one example where, you know, it's very custom to them. There's not going to be like an off-the-shelf classifier for that. But mm-hmm. using nickel, they could just upload their own images and give their own examples, their own definitions of this is wilting, this is not wilting. And then we train that for them, deployed it, and they're using it. Another cool use case is a company that does math quizzes. So instead of, apparently, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not an educator, but apparently when you do math quizzes, instead of doing multiple choices, you can have the students write down their answer, like the reasoning behind their answer. Mm. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so this is a company called Mathenix that provides that service to schools, and then they also grade the free-form answers, right? And they have mm. a very rigorous rubric for how to make that fair. And they used to use humans to grade those quizzes until they came across Nickel, and I realized I can have a machine learning function or an AI to grade these quizzes for me. And when I first came, came to us, I'm like, okay, that sounds like a little bit too good to be true, but let's try it, mm. you know? Mm-hmm. And they did, and it actually worked really well for them. So they saved like 90% of their manual annotation efforts can now be done using Nickel instead. And I think there's also a use case that people used to help in the war in Ukraine. Is that right? Yeah, that was that was actually pretty cool. So when the when the war started, and Nicholas self-serve, right? People just create an account and build a function themselves. We noticed this this developer in Ukraine created a function, and uh, we reached out to him, and then obviously gave him a, the service for free and stuff like that because we want to do what we can. But mm-hmm. the problem he was trying to solve was he's building a site for re- internally replaced people, like internal refugees in, in mm-hmm. Ukraine. So he had a very simple bulletin board where people can post, I have like, I can offer shelter or I need shelter. And for some reason, people were clicking the wrong button. So they need shelter, but they were clicking the I offer shelter button. So they like, oh, interesting. the entries in his database got very messed up. Mm-hmm. So he trained a nickel function to just say for this particular piece of text, is this an offer or is this a request for shelter? Okay. And that was also really cool because that's like in, you know, some of them are in Ukraine. Some of them in Russian, some are in English, like the actual offers, right? The, mm-hmm, the request. Mm-hmm. But he was able to get really, really high accuracy and um, that's helped him effectively run his humanitarian service. That's the real point of pride. We were happy to be able to help in a very small way. 
Tell me about some of the limitations of using nickel or something like nickel. What can't you do? Where's kind of the, the line for that? Yeah, you are limited to the type of functions that we offer. Mm-hmm. So, you know, one example was that we just li- recently launched something called an optical search. You know, you, you create a library of images and then you search that library using another image to find the most similar mm-hmm. images. So that's like very common use like requests from people that run web shops. You have a couple of like NFT customers actually that use this. And that was like a request from a customer that were like, hey, I don't actually need to classify this image. I need to search and find similar images right in a database. And that's the kind of thing where, you know, if we don't provide that particular function type, then you can't use Nickel, right? Obviously, mm-hmm. we encourage everyone to like contact us and talk to us because we have several like beta programs going. We're always interested in hearing new use cases. Mm-hmm. But that's the most obvious limitation of Nickel, where you, if we don't support it, you, you can't do it, right? Mm-hmm. And then I would say the other part is, as far as like the accuracy goes, I think it's a bit of a blessing and a curse. But right now, we don't expose any of the machine learning dials. So we just say, okay. we will try everything we have and give you the best model. And all you need to do is focus on your data. So mm-hmm. make sure all your annotations are correct and we help you find those. Make sure you're sending us data that is relevant. Like I said, with that domain shift, like data that is representative of your production environment, that is not like toy data you're training on, mm-hmm. that your label said is relatively balanced. So all these things, so like we help them focus on their data because a lot of times that it actually is what matters the most. Mm-hmm. However, yeah. you know, obviously like once the data is as good as you can get, there's been one or two examples where still the nickel accuracy isn't high enough for them. Hmm. And then they just have to go somewhere else right, or build right, it themselves. Right. So we mentioned Nickel, of course, we mentioned Fast AI, we mentioned PyTorch. Any other favorite resources or tools when it comes to learning and, and doing machine learning and AI and kind of getting into that world? I'm sort of on the fence here whether to recommend something called Jupyter Notebooks. Are you familiar yeah, yeah. with those? Mm-hmm. So I have a bit of a love-hate relationship with those because they're so, I think of them as candy. Like it's so easy to just open up a notebook and start like doing away. <laughs> <laughs> but then after a while, you just kind of get sick to your stomach because you just have a pile of code that is, it's just a mess, right? It's a, <laughs> mm-hmm. you, can execute, you can execute the cells in any order. So it's mm-hmm. extremely easy that you find a bug in there. Mm-hmm. So back in my previous job, I had this rule that you're never allowed to save a notebook. So every time you start from a fresh notebook. And the reason I say that is because what you should be doing, you can use as a prototype tool write code, iterate a little bit. But then whatever like useful fragments of code or functions or classes you develop, put them in your actual library and like commit them mm-hmm. in your yeah. IDE with, with as much type checking as possible with Python and like whatever pre-commit hooks and tests and so on, right? So that next time you sit down, you just import that class from your quote unquote real code. Yeah, I remember the first time I saw a Jupyter notebook, I was like, Oh my god, this looks this looks out of control. <laughs> Cuz I'm just not used to looking at yeah, I'm, I'm a Rails developer, so I'm not used to looking at code in that way and kind of having yeah. each line run its own thing and then you have to keep it in a certain order and it was it was a very different way of looking at code and way of coding that I wasn't used to and I was like, "Oh man, if if this is my world, I can see myself getting lost very easily." So <laughs> so I I totally understand what you mean. Yeah, it's a real blessing in the curse. I mean, and the fast.ai guy, 
he really advocates notebooks and he argues mm. he's developed some way to actually convert notebooks into libraries. Oh. He does all his development in notebooks. So I don't want, you know, there, there might be a way. Mm-hmm. And especially if you're working with data, it is amazing, right? You can just. It is fast. It's really quick to iterate and, and just kind of. And you can, you can look at, you can look at things, right? You can see right. the outputs and right. you can render them and, and look at statistics and things, put up histograms and stuff like that very quickly. So yeah, it should probably be part of your toolbox if you want to get into this. Now, at the end of every episode, we ask our guests to fill in the blanks of some very important questions. Oscar, are you ready to fill in the blanks? Uh, sure, I'll, I'll try. <laughs> Number one, worst advice I've ever received is? Oh, yeah, I, I, I think I've gotten so many bad, so much bad advice, <laughs> I don't have many. You've just rejected it? You've tossed it all out? I mean, there's no such thing as bad advice, right? It's just like, it, was, it worked for that person in their mm. context, right? So you always okay. have to look at advice. Does that apply to my context? Yeah, very diplomatic. Okay, I like that. Number <laughs> two, best advice I've ever received. Yeah, I mean, you know, my... Uh, it is. This is maybe a little, a little corny, but my dad, you know, when I was 15 or something, got my first job and he said, you know, if someone gives you a broom, just sweep the shit out of the room, right? Just like, huh. just work really hard. Like even if someone mm. gives you the dumbest task, just mm. own that like work yeah. really hard at that and show that you are like you can follow through you're capable and then you get something more interesting to do next time mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. as far career goes i think that advice is actually pretty solid yeah i like just that. just make yourself useful just don't drop the ball on things and people will enjoy working with you number three my first coding project was about yeah so that was the game that i wrote in the basic programming language is mm-hmm. a little like question answering thing where it's just a prompt saying okay you stand in front of a door. Do you open it or not? Mm-hmm. One thing I wish I knew when I first started to code is? Yeah, I mean, that question is funny because I think it's actually kind of nice to not know too much. Like, if mm-hmm. I know okay. everything I know now, mm. I don't think I would have even started because it's really? so hard. <laughs> I feel like every time I look back at my own code, I'm like, oh, this is terrible. <laughs> so like, if I would known all the things I really kind of, like today that I feel I need to know, mm. I would have been so overwhelmed. So I feel like don't worry about it. Just start and it's right. Well, thank you again so much for joining us, Oscar. Cool. Thanks for having me. This show is produced and mixed by Levi Sharp. You can reach out to us on Twitter at CodeNewbies or send me an email, hello at CodeNewbie.org. For more info on the podcast, check out www.codenewbie.org slash podcast. Thanks for listening. See you next week.